Gather round, one and all, and listen to tales of excitement and adventure. Tales of daring heroes, savage monsters, and bards who just couldn't keep it in their pants. Tales of friendship, nobility, drunken foolishness, and unforgettable fun. These are tales of role-playing games, fair listeners, and this is Rollin' Bones. My name is Ryan Howard, and I shall be your god. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to Rollin' Bones with Ryan Howard, your source for the best in RPG interviews. I am, of course, your dungeon master, host, and king of the Boneheads, Ryan Howard, and today I had the uh, distinct pleasure of talking with... Luke Hart of the DM Layer for the second time, and uh, this is a continuation of a conversation that uh, Tim Mathias and I started a few episodes back, uh, a while back, I think all the way back in January, about uh, getting started as a dungeon master. And so what Luke and I have done in this episode is we are kind of taking that to the next level and uh, telling you how you as a dungeon master, if you've been playing for a while and, you know, you're starting to get competent at consistently running games and, you know, consistently engaging your players, how you can take that game to the next level. And so we had a great conversation. This is a long episode, so I'm going to keep this intro a little bit short. Uh, Luke was very kind to, you know, stick with me and go through this big, long document that I typed up for. Him. And so that was a lot of fun. Uh, a couple things real quick before we get into the meat and potatoes of our episode here. First and foremost, uh, Deadlands the Weird West, completely successful Kickstarter. Uh, I take very little credit for that because, you know, Pinnacle has been doing this for so long and they're, you know, great at what they do. They had a great campaign and I am super excited just to, to get those initial PDFs to start looking over the, the changes that they've made for Suede. And then in uh, November or December, when the, uh, the box set starts coming in, uh, the, then I'll be really excited. And then I'll start making my players uh, play the game with me. And then another Kickstarter campaign I, of course, want to plug. He's actually going to be on the podcast next week, as you'll hear at the end of this episode. Uh, Levi Combs' Escape from Skullcano Island is already fully funded with 17 days to go. Uh, Guys, this thing looks awesome. Even if you just go to the Kickstarter page, that first piece of artwork that you see there... It's unbelievable. I can't wait to see, you know, what kind of craziness uh, Levi put into this game. And uh, for those of you who don't know, this is an adventure module that's compatible with multiple different uh, systems of play, mostly designed around 5th edition, though. So uh, keep that in mind. This is not a complete rule set. This is an adventure. And it's a uh, higher level adventure, if I remember uh, what Levi was telling me uh, before the campaign started. Uh, But we'll talk in detail about that next week when he's on the show. Also, uh, one thing that I wanted to announce real quick, because this news just crossed my desk today. I will be, for the first time in my entire career of doing this, running a game session that will be recorded and released 
as a podcast next week. So I will be a guest on a podcast that, it, this was the first podcast I ever listened to. Uh, this is a, a property and a franchise that is very near and dear to my heart. And, you know, the, these are, you know, the, the guys behind this podcast were the ones who inspired me to start doing my own shows all the way back when I was doing Digital Men. Uh, the, the inspiration to do this show and even some of the initial advice that I got came from these guys. Uh, so it is my distinct pleasure to announce that I will be a guest on James Bond Radio and I will be specifically running some of the hosts of uh, JBR through a session of the James Bond role-playing game from the 80s. I am currently, you know, going through the rules, making sure that I'm solid on all of that, and, you know, making characters for them and stuff like that. But I, these guys are super excited about James Bond. I love James Bond. It's something I haven't really talked about on this podcast, but it's true. I'm a Bond fanatic. And I can't wait to see how this goes. None of these guys have played role-playing games before, so this could be pretty fun and pretty interesting. Maybe I'll have some converts out of this, some people who, you know, didn't initially play role-playing games, but now they, they really like it and they really want to keep doing it. That's, that's my hope for this, you know, that... That I can convince people who love a, a certain franchise, in this case James Bond, you know, that there's this whole new way to express your fandom. And it's through this this game that came out in the 80s that's unfortunately no longer supported. I'll do kind of a deep dive on the history of the James Bond role-playing game when the episode is out. I may even release that episode of their podcast as an episode of my podcast. I'll have to talk with them about that. But you should all listen to James Bond Radio. If you like my show and, you know, want to hear me actually run a game, uh, that'll be the place to do it. And if you like James Bond and you're not listening to JBR already, what's wrong with you? Just, just go for it. It's a fantastic show. They've done a lot of good things. They interviewed Roger Moore before he passed away. JBR is like the definitive James Bond podcast, and I am over the moon excited that I'm gonna get to be a part of it for, for that episode, you know, just to, to run the session for them. So, without further ado, ladies and gentlemen, let's get into the meat and potatoes of today's episode, the steak, the bacon, if you will, unless you're my wife and you don't like bacon. That is the interview with Luke Hart on Stepping Up, your D&D game. I hope you all enjoy it, and I'll see you on the other side. All right, Boneheads, uh, please welcome back to Roland Bones, his second time on the show. I wanted to do a continuation of the conversation that Tim Mathias and I had about kind of starting out as a dungeon master, because as well as, you know, having you players out there who are wanting to become DMs, I'm sure we've got a lot of people out there who have been DMing for a little bit, you know, you, you know your you know your rhythm, you are able to consistently put on a game and get people to show up, but you're wondering, you know, what's beyond this? Is there a next level that I can take myself to? Well, Boneheads, I've got a treat for you today because we're about to talk about how to take your game to that next level with the man behind the DM layer himself. Ladies and gentlemen, give it up for the returning Luke Hart. Dude, with an intro like that, I'm going to be like a total failure now to everybody <laughs> listening. They're going to be like, oh my gosh, he's going to give us some pearls of wisdom and I'm just going to blow it. <laughs> well, Man. I don't think that's possible because <laughs> I watch your videos 
And I, I mean, you are the guy who says in your videos, I give practical dungeon mastering advice that you can use at your table. Right. And in your own content, you said that you run what five games a week or is it four games a week? It's, it's not that many a week. It's like, oh. I have a, I have a weekly one on Thursday and then I have one or two on the weekend. Gotcha. So it's probably, it probably averages out to, you know, I don't know, two, one, Cause I have some weekends that are off. <laughs> I don't know. It's, it's enough. I'm happy. <laughs> Cause I've got, I mean, I find myself where I regularly have two games a week mm-hmm. and I find that that's a lot to juggle. So yes. Hearing it's, like the amount of games that you've run at one time uh, astounds me. Yeah. That's it. It, it takes a lot of work. So it takes a lot of work, a lot of preparation time to run that many games, you know, but you also have to make decisions. You also have to decide that you, you can't put the same amount of effort into every single game when you're running that many. Yeah. Like there was a, there was a, there's a period of time when like, so like I have like four games I'm running right now. Okay. Mm-hmm. My weekly one for my coworkers is kind of, it's kind of like my throwaway game. We'll call it. I put a very minimal amount of work into it and I just kind of like, I'll prepare for like not very long before a game session. Like we're talking minutes, mm-hmm. you know, and I'll just kind of wing a lot of it, you know, cause, cause I just don't have time to do tons of prep for it. My, 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 a couple of my other games are a little bit less effort. And then I have one that I run for my patrons that I put tons of effort into. Okay. And so you kind of got to choose your battles. You got to decide which ones you're going to put tons of effort into and, and why. And then, mm-hmm. you know, you got to do that. If you don't, like you can't run, like I'm running four, am I running four? campaigns right now you know and you can't run that many campaigns i mean you i mean you could put tons of effort in each one but then you probably have no life you yeah. know <laughs> yeah and like with guys like us you know we're both uh we're both married men you know you, you've got a family i i don't yet have a family it's just my wife and the cats mm-hmm. uh but you know we we've got other things that are going on in our lives. We both have full-time jobs. And so there's a lot of other things kind of, you know, reaching out for our attention. So, you know, for people like us and a lot of people out there who don't make content and are just, you know, playing this as a hobby, you have to pick your battles as far as, you know, what, what you prep for. Yeah. Yeah. Or how much prep you do for your games. Yeah. Agreed. Yeah. Mm And I mean, I find myself in a similar boat, even with my two games, my Dark Sun game on uh, Wednesday nights. I do a lot of prep for those guys to the point where I'm almost writing a module, like a loose module of Dark Sun that's never yeah. been written that, that I do for them because they're, they're all way more experienced players than me and they are all about, you know, okay, what's going on around here? What's, what's built in here that, that we can kind of play around in. But my Saturday game with my wife and a couple of our friends, mm-hmm. they just like the, we want to screw around and kind of find our own path through this, this crazy world here. And so I improv a lot of that game because if I set something out like a clear path that they need to go down to find all the content that I've prepared. I know they're not going to pick that path. Yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> you got players like that, huh? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. Yeah. I have, I mean, I, I deal with them. So like my, my players are pretty good about 
going after the plot hooks I set before them. I usually don't have to worry about players wandering too far off the beaten path, you know. Um, occasionally they do. Occasionally they'll go off and do something, you know. Um, a lot of times it's because I intentionally give them, like, some sort of, like, tertiary plot hook that I just – sometimes I come up with them on the fly, and I'm just like, oh, yeah, blah, 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 blah. And then, then they'll decide to do it, and I'm just like, oh, crap, Luke, that's your own fault. <laughs> <laughs> you know, <laughs> so sometimes that happens, you know, um, mm-hmm. which is fine. But it's like, I think it's, it's kind of like there's this trust between the dungeon master and the players. There's a social contract. There's a meet me halfway thing where it's like, okay, I have designed adventures I, with, and I've given you plot hooks and stuff, you know, for the most part, the expectation is you guys are going to kind of go on the adventures I've designed, you know. However, if the players want to go off and do something different on the road that's a little crazy or something you didn't prepare for you know you got to roll with it to a certain extent you know it's like you know they'll go along with your stuff but then if they want to go so crazy you know you kind of roll with it and you prepare something or you just wing it you know what i mean so there, i think there's got to be a balance to both of those you know yeah. uh, if it's purely just only ever do what the dungeon master is prepared for you to do that gets a little old but if it's only ever just like holy crap, we're winging every game session because the players are just changing their minds and going doing crazy stuff. Like some people that's cool and, they, and dungeon masters can handle that. You know, I don't know if I would find a game like that enjoyable. Just me personally, you know? <laughs> yeah. As a player, I know I wouldn't enjoy that kind of game as a dungeon master. I see it as my chance to learn to improv. Oh, okay. Yeah. Like I think as a, as a, dungeon master i wouldn't enjoy that game god you know like it's just it's just too much unpredictability or something unless i mean Mm -hmm. i shoot i could just if if my play so like if my players were okay with a subpar game you know like Mm -hmm. total freedom in the world you could do whatever you want but luke's gonna be making everything up on the fly which means that the quality is going to suffer because that's just that's just how it works usually yep. you know the more you can prepare for something usually the better quality it is you know mm-hmm. but if they're just having a tons of fun doing crazy wacky stuff you know and they have total freedom and that's fine then that's cool you know mm-hmm. i i will know that it's probably not as good a game as if i had been able to prepare stuff mm-hmm. you know but players might not know the difference right you know to them it might be just as fun or more fun you know mm-hmm. so and to give them some credit, because, well, one of them listens, um, they do generally move towards kind of the story that I've laid out for them. There is like a an objective in mind that they're moving towards. Uh, the way they go about that, though, they, they typically ignore kind of the, the plot hooks that I have in mind and usually kind of find their way in the back door of the objective that I have laid out for them. Yeah. Yeah. So they kind of, yeah. So they kind of head that way, but yeah, not by the path you maybe thought they would or something. Right. Yeah. 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 That's cool. So when it comes to, you know, as a player and I know both of us probably find ourselves in the, in the situations where uh, we're, we're GMing and pretty much just GMing. Mm -hmm. Uh, But as a player, even going back to your early days, you, you can even you, you can tell the difference between a good game and a great game. What is that difference for you? Just from a like player's perspective. <laughs> That's a horrible question to ask me right off the bat, dude. <laughs> <laughs> 
Oh, that's like one of those questions, Rob, that's like, I have no stinking idea. I'm not a player often enough. Mm-hmm. I can tell you, I can tell you, I can definitely tell you that like as a player, um, games that I've been in that have like totally sucked are the ones where the dungeon master has this like DM versus player mentality. And mm-hmm. he's trying to basically, instead of cooperating, instead of the dungeon master and the players like working together and cooperating and having fun together, it's more like dungeon master versus player. And he's trying to mm-hmm. thwart your every move and make your lives miserable. It's not challenging you to make the game fun. It's I literally want to beat you. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? Or something. Yeah. And so I can tell you that that for sure is not fun. You know, the next step up toward fun is where the dungeon master will say yes to more things and Mm -hmm. he'll cooperate with you, you know, but I think that, man, what takes a game from good to great? Part of it is, part of it is preparation and having a plan, but part of it is, part of it is allowing your players freedom too to do what they want and not forcing them down any road. Like I'll give plot hooks, but I never make my players take them. Right. You know, and, and there's like a complexity to the world too. There's a, there's a sense that your decisions matter. So like my players might decide to, you know, I don't know, sell a map or something, you know, to um, ever meet you know, and then there are grave consequences down the road. It comes back to haunt them and they have to go on a quest to resolve some issue or something, you mm-hmm. know? And so there's this, there's this aspect of like, you know, almost, almost trepidation because there's this feeling that like, you know, is kind of built into the game that you believe to a certain extent that it's a real world, you know, yeah. that like, if I do something, something is going to happen as a result. Like mm-hmm. constantly my players will be like, you know, I don't know if we can take a short rest right now, you know, like we're, they're in the middle of a dungeon. They're like, we have no resources. We're out of spells. We're in trouble. And then a couple of the players are like, yeah, but I don't think we can take a short rest right now. Like these enemies are doing this, that, and the other, if we take a longer short rest right now, we're going to be in trouble. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? There's this sense that like, their decisions and actions matter. It's not just a game, you know, it's not just like, well, we have no spells. So we have to take a long rest. It's no, we can't because the bad guy's doing a ritual and he's going to win if we do, you know? And so I think it's like where they believe, they believe more and more that it's a, a real world, you know? Mm-hmm. So I don't know. I think there, there, there are some things there, you know, that probably take you closer to, to being an awesome game. Mm-hmm. You know um, I think it's part of it is, listening to your players and working with them, you know, trying to say yes more than you say no. And when it is a no, you know, um, try to make it like a, the, the classic yes and, or yes, but you know what I yep. mean? So mm-hmm. it, it's, it's being cooperative. It's be, it's, it's as a dungeon master, it's having it fixed in your mind that your goal is for your players to have fun. You're there to provide a few hours of entertainment for your players you know, and that's, that's the goal. If that's what you're trying to do, if you're trying to ensure that they have fun, you know, then you're going to, you're going to be empathetic. You're going to take into consideration what they enjoy in the game. If they love puzzles, if they love traps, you're going to help them with that. If they love combat, if they love tactical combat on grid, you know, you're going to, you're going to be focusing on those things. You're going to care about Mm -hmm. those things more. And I think too, when a dungeon master can, I hear a lot of folks, they'll talk about like, I'm creating the story or I'm creating the plot. 
dungeon masters don't create the story. We don't create the plot, Mm -hmm. right? Like we create a situation. We create a, a thing that's happening over here. And then how the players interact with that situation, with that thing, that's what determines the story that comes as a result. Yep. And so I think a, a pitfall uh, that some dungeon masters can fall into is thinking that I am writing out a plot, a storyline of what should take place in this campaign. And my players have to follow along with that. And that is completely erroneous. And that's going to make players feel like they have no power. They, their choices don't matter, you know, and they're just locked into this like death march that the dungeon master has them on. But when there's a situation and they have freedom to interact with it or not, to overcome the problem, however they choose to use different methods and stuff, then that's going to elevate your game to like a whole, whole new level, you know, uh, of players having fun and, and the freedom to play the game how they want to and how they enjoy the game. So there's a whole bunch of stuff I just monologued at you there. <laughs> so good, but just to to pick up on something that you just said there. Um, and this is something I've never really kind of put these things together, but having been an actor in a previous life, I know that, you know, the theatrical and the film definition of plot is how the characters, the people in the story are reacting to the circumstances that they're in. That's the plot. So as a dungeon master, you know, like you said, you're not providing the plot, you're providing the circumstances Yes. And the way that your players react to that, uh, that's the plot. That's yes. the story of your campaign. And so all you're doing as a dungeon master, and this is a, a hard lesson that I think every dungeon master has had to learn, myself included, you're only creating the circumstances. It's on your players to then create the plot that goes along with those circumstances. Yes, totally agree. 100% agree. And I think that's a that's an easy pitfall for people to fall into is to yeah. try to to create the whole story themselves. But of course, if they want to write the whole story themselves, they're in the wrong profession. Yeah. They really should be writing books, not running D and D games. Mm-hmm. You know, absolutely, yeah, yeah. At that point, you're you're R. A. Salvatore. Yeah, yeah. Or you're try, trying to be R. A. Yeah. Salvatore. <laughs> Only you're going to have tons of manuscripts that never get published, and you never get an agent, and, you, and then you're like, "Why? Why am I writing all this stuff? I never get any money for it." <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> now, in the video that came out today, as we're recording this, uh, you yourself said that you have been a dungeon master since uh, Pocahontas was released. <laughs> I will do you the service of not reminding the audience of what year that was or how old I was when that happened. 1996? Uh, I think 97. <laughs> was it 97? Yeah. Uh, I thought it was 96, whatever. Which oh, now I will completely undercut everything <laughs> I just said and say that I was two years old when that happened. Um, I was like 16 or something. <laughs> <laughs> so in that time, you know, obviously you, you went from being a, you know, brand new dungeon master to where you are now. So at some point you went from being a competent dungeon master to a dungeon master who really knew, you know, what he was doing and, you know, had a grasp on the game and stuff like that. Do you remember a clear delineation between those two points? And if so, uh, you know, kind of what, what was that moment where you realized I'm not just a competent dungeon master. I'm actually pretty good at this. Um, I don't think there was a clear delineation. Um, okay. I can tell you, I probably was horrible in high school. 
Um, when I ran it in college, I don't know, like my memory's not super, super great. Mm -hmm. I found some of my notes from the games I ran in college and I'm like, (laughs) how did you even run a game with this garbage? You know? (laughs) So I, I suspect that when I was running in college, I wasn't that great. Now Mm -hmm. I ran, um, I ran 3.5 play by post for like two years or so, Mm -hmm. um, when I was living down in Central America and, um, that was mostly writing. Like I'm a writer. I studied writing. That's like, that was my degree in crap. So mm-hmm. like play by post is a lot of writing. And so if you're a good writer, then you can be a great play by post dungeon master. Cause it's just a lot of writing, you know? Um, so I did a lot of writing for that. Um, but it was the dungeon mastering skills were like a different, it's a different beast when you're play by post. And then for fifth edition, I think it's got to be so like fifth edition is probably when I started to get better at it. When I started, I feel like I was good at it, you know, Mm -hmm. but I think honestly, I, I sometimes now that I'm like actually thinking about it, I wonder to what degree it is less of a circumstance of my having been a dungeon master for a long time and more that of my having just matured as a person and grown as a person, you know, Mm -hmm. And have I just have different skill sets, you know? I like when I started running fifth edition, my skill sets were different. I was a different person, you know. Yeah. Um. So I wonder, like that, those those things that aren't directly related to D and D and running D and D that help me, you know. Yeah. Um. And so I think that has a lot to do with it. So if you want a clear delineation, I say I would say that when I was probably started doing fifth edition, it was a lot better, mm-hmm. you know, than before. Um. But honestly, the whole, the whole, my whole thing on my, my videos where I'm like, I've been a dungeon master since high school. It's a, it's a running joke. It's yeah. a running joke because in all mm-hmm. honesty, it doesn't matter one single bit, how long you've been a dungeon master. Mm-hmm. There are people that have been a dungeon master for 30 years that suck. Yeah. And then absolutely. there's somebody that starts doing it and they just got the knack for it. And they're, they've been doing it for two game sessions and they're amazing. Mm-hmm. You know? So how long you've been like, just like, you know, how long you've been doing, we, we all know teachers who are like, have been teaching for a long time and they're like the worst teachers ever. And then you got some young buck out of college who you love, who's a great teacher. You know what I mean? So how long yeah. you've been doing something doesn't really make a difference, mm-hmm. you know? Um, but I think, I definitely think that in fifth edition, when I started doing that, like about, I don't know, five years ago, what, I don't know, whenever it was, mm-hmm. that's when I noticed probably like, Hey, you know, uh, I'm not too bad at this. You know, (laughs) people seem to be having fun and they keep coming back. Mm -hmm. And when your players keep coming back to your game sessions and you see them smiling and they're not on their phones all the time, then you know that, Hey, they probably enjoy your game. Yep. Absolutely. Yeah. I think I even remember going kind of back in your back catalog and it, the exaggeration being like even more, I I think at one point you said you've been a dungeon master since you were eight years old or something like that. Middle school. I had one from like 1973 or something. (laughs) I mean, I just, I just switch it up all the time. Every, like most of the time it's, I've been a dungeon master since high school, but every so often I'll just throw something else in, you know, this one time, this one time I I said, and I've been a high school since dungeon master, like without missing a beat, (laughs) I like totally swapped him around And people were commenting. They're like, "Okay, you're, you've been saying that so much, you get confused." They like they they all of that stuff's intentional. Yeah, pe- I mean. people sometimes forget just how many takes you you do in a video to to make a recorded video, and, and maybe even forget that hey, he had to watch this back while editing it. Yeah, it's 
right. It's it's actually one take usually. Gotcha. Like it's I'm a one take wonder. Like <laughs> I try as much as possible to get it in one take. Mm-hmm. And for the most part, like I would say probably 80% of my videos, it's one take. That's it. Mm-hmm. I, I used to do three takes of every little segment and it made editing miserable. When you have to yep. look at three different things and choose the best one and they're all pretty well delivered, you're just like, oh, it just takes forever. And then, I, and then it occurred to me, it's like, Luke, like most of the stuff, most of the time you, you make these, like it's all, the delivery is all pretty much the same. It's just nuances, you mm-hmm. know? And the audience is never going to know if you did three takes and chose the best one or if you did it once and that once was pretty good because they only see one thing. And so I became pretty much like I do one take and that's it. Unless I screw something up really badly and then I'll redo it. Um, Mm -hmm. But even now, a lot of times I'll screw stuff up and I'll leave it in. I'm just like, whatever, I don't care. I leave it in, you know? And there's, Mm -hmm. there's actually, there's like, there's reasonings and like, you know, when you make mistakes, and you mispronounce things or you do something stupid or you hold the book. I was just reviewing a book today that my editor sent me and I was holding the book up backwards. Like instead of the (laughs) front of the cover, I was showing the back of the cover. I didn't even realize it when I was filming it, Mm -hmm. you know, and my editor dropped a little thing on there. Hey Luke, the book's backwards on the video to make, to make fun of me. You know what I mean? So, but it's, you know, Hmm. yeah. But yeah, I I actually, I, so I, I just got an, an editor and I was editing my videos so I don't have to, now I'm not watching myself a hundred times <laughs> in my videos. That's the dream, really. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, I, I enjoy editing. I'm like, I, I don't mind it, but it, mm-hmm. it takes you like two to three hours to edit a video, you know, um, and you got to do a bunch of them. It's mm-hmm. like, I'd rather just pay somebody else to do that. And he, he's, he does a really good job. There are, so, there, are, there are several things he does better than I. And so that's, it's like, all right, cool. Let's do this. Mm-hmm. And, and one of the benefits of doing just one take is you, you don't have to continually go back and try to do that, that rogue voice that I'm sure just kind of mm. destroys your throat after a while. Dude, that rogue voice is miserable, <laughs> man. I, it's like, it's like, holy crap, I'm going to die if I have to keep saying this voice. That would mess me up. It yep. gets hoarse. Yeah, because <laughs> I think last time we talked about the barbarian voice, and you said that one wasn't actually as difficult unless you had to do it for for a super long period. But that rogue yeah. voice—that's horrible. Yeah, rogue voice is really hard. The barbarian—I actually did an entire, almost an hour. Oh, I did a I did a live stream for an hour long where I was using the barbarian's voice, and that wasn't really that hard. I mean, I could talk like this for quite some time, you know. Yeah. Um. And then I did another video with the rogue, with the, with the barbarian voice. It's not that mm-hmm. bad. After an hour, though, it starts to hurt. Yeah. But the rogue voice is like within 30 <laughs> seconds. And you're just like, okay, we're done. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yep. To the point where you start questioning why you picked that voice. <laughs> right, right. Well, I'm, I'm stuck with it now. And, yep. and you know that Gary the intern pretty much has the exact same voice. Yeah. It's the same one, only whereas the rogue is like all like, cynical and pessimistic and angry and hateful Gary the intern is just kind of a little bit of a moron yeah you know so that's the only difference mm-hmm. gotcha well when it comes to you know creating that that really great game that people enjoy I found uh, with my own games there there's really four things that are kind of paramount to to making sure that your game is as good as it can possibly be. One we've already talked about a little bit, preparation. 
the second thing, and this is one that every dungeon master will struggle with till the end of time, that being pacing. Mm-hmm. Third thing is variety of encounters, which you have talked a lot about in your videos. And then the fourth thing is player and character engagement. Yeah. So I guess uh, just kind of taking those things in order, you know, keeping in mind, you know, we've, we've already had a little bit of a conversation around prep. There, there's really two main points I wanted to touch on here, and that's the difference in prep if you're running a more linear game or if you're running a more sandbox game or, God forbid, you're running some kind of West Marches game. What, what does what <laughs> different levels of prep look like? Okay, so I've never played West Marches, but by that comment, it sounds like you have, and it was not an enjoyable experience. Well, I've never, I've also never played a West Marches game, okay. but from what I understand, you get like 10 to 20 people, maybe even multiple dungeon masters, and basically you have to create an entire world with its own verisimilitude and all of that, mm-hmm. and you, your players basically tell you, hey, a group of us are going to get together and go after this thing. And then you have to prepare uh-huh. that thing. That oh yeah. So uh-huh. it's, it's like a sandbox game cranked up to 11. Okay. Yeah. That sounds like something that would make for a great Reddit post, mm-hmm. but would be miserable in actual reality. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Matt Colville's talked about it a lot and I, he seems super jazzed about it. I can't even imagine trying to corral that nonsense. Yeah, he seems super jazzed out about a lot of things that I tend to be skeptical about. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's like, I, I want to experience that first before I'm going yeah. to bite that hook right there. <laughs> okay, so basically level preparation. Yeah. Sandbox, like a true, so like what I, the way I view a sandbox, a sandbox is not, okay, guys, here's the world. What do you want to do? Go do something. And then I wing stuff on the fly. That's not a sandbox. Right. That's, that's a, I am not going to prepare a game dungeon master and i'm gonna wing crap you know that's what that is a sandbox in my opinion is when you literally have a variety of adventures just sitting out there and players could go to like any one of them and do kind of any of them you know and so you have tons of stuff prepared in advance you know you might have an entire area prepared with tons of encounters dungeons and stuff and no matter where they poke they're going to run into one of them and you're ready to run them so in my opinion that takes crap tons of effort and you can control it a little bit with plot hooks maybe give them several at a time or something um but it's a lot of effort like curse of strahd is a sandbox adventure yep. you know and i'm prepared to run that right now and it's basically players can go anywhere you know now dungeon master can use hooks to kind of like lead them in certain directions you know but it takes a lot more preparation than a linear adventure if you look at a linear adventure that's pretty simple. All you have to do is prepare like one thing and that's where the players are going to go. Um, now with a sandbox, if you do the, comp, the, the best of both worlds, I suppose, of linear and sandbox is where you can get to a point where you can give your players options for what they want to do and then they can tell you which one they want to do and then you go prepare that one for the next game session. Mm-hmm. So if you can get that, then you're going to be doing, it's going to be easier for you as the dungeon master because you can prepare one thing and it's better for the players because that one thing is the thing that they chose and they want to do, you know? And so you have buy-in from the players and you're, you know what I mean? So Mm. that's like the best of both worlds in my opinion. Um, Yeah. Yeah. 
Absolutely. And if you're, you're planning on running Curse of Strahd, uh, fair warning, one of my friends actually discovered this in, uh, in his Curse of Strahd game. When it comes to the finale, the final showdown, mm-hmm. your players might, depending on what they've picked up or, or what you've kind of bestowed on them, might use a mage hand to drop a sunblade into his coffin and kill him immediately. <laughs> Interesting. <laughs> of course, a sunblade, uh, it's probably, it probably weighs under five pounds. Mm-hmm. Eh. Okay, well, that, I mean, that won't work. I'll just <laughs> say no. Yep. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> it's like, does no. it work? Does it work? <laughs> Strahd sleeps with like a metal plate on his chest. Yep. Of course. Absolutely. So he can't get stabbed in the chest. He's got one of those sunshades. <laughs> Something. Yeah, totally. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. And then, uh, I mean, while we're talking about, you know, prepping something like Curse of Strahd, a module or a, a published uh, setting, mm-hmm. how much prep do you do uh, before kind of just running everyone how much prep do you do before like session one and how much prep do you do in the lead up to each individual session? Um, I don't do a whole lot of prep before session one. Mm-hmm. When I'm, if I'm preparing a homebrew campaign, my preparation isn't a whole lot before the first session. Um, I'll have a general idea of like the base. I'll probably know who the big bad is at the end. I might know who some of his lieutenants are. I might have a general idea of some of the different problems and situations that'll be going on in the game world. Um, I'll have an overall picture. That's pretty much it. And then, and then I'll have the first adventure, you know, ready to go. That's pretty much it. Um, For a module, I'm going to read the the front material that gives you a summary of the module. I'm going to read the first adventure, you know, and, it's pretty much what I'm going to do. I'm not going to read the whole module. I'm actually, I have a few, I have a video coming out in a few weeks. That's how to prepare for a module. And like my biggest pet peeve is reading advice on the internet where people tell you to read the entire module mm-hmm. or read it twice. And I'm like, go look at Dungeon of the Mad Mage. It's 300 pages. You're going to read that whole thing once or twice before you run it. Are you mm-hmm. serious? You're going to spend a year doing that and you're not even going to remember what's in it, dude. Right. You know yeah. I mean, <laughs> so it's like, so I don't, I don't read the whole thing. Now, now that said, Curse of Strahd, I'm actually trying to like read as much as possible of it because it is sandboxy, mm-hmm. you know, which, which goes back to my previous comment about running sandbox is much more difficult and requires more prep than yep. running a linear adventure, you know? Um, but yeah, so I, I feel like modules though, as far as like the amount of preparation, homebrew takes a lot more preparation on my part because like, I, when I, when I make homebrew adventures, my, I have like word documents of notes that are 10 to 20 pages long. And it's not just like Luke, like making cringy DM notes. They're, they're like, I, like I said, I'm a, I'm a writer. They're like legit. They could, they're legitimate, very close to first drafts of something that could be published. They're like pretty legit, you know? And so like, that's a lot of work for me when I do homebrew. Um, when I run modules, dude, I, I can prep a, I can prep an entire adventure in like an hour from a module. Yeah, I read through it. I make some highlighted things. I make some notes on the map. I'm ready to go. Is it going to be the most riveting game session? No, because I took an hour to prep it, dude. You know, mm-hmm. but it can be done. Modules they take they take a lot of that creativity, a lot of that 
Because creativity takes time. Yep. They take a lot of the creativity, the planning, the number crunching, and they do all that for you, and they put it into a published form. And depending on the module you get, sometimes they're easy to use. Like um, Curse of Strahd, most of it has like read-aloud text and seems to be pretty well-formatted and stuff like that. If you take something like um, Against the Giants from Tales from the Running Portal, it's miserable. It's like, it's, just, it's horrible to use that type of a module because the way it's written. So some, some are written much better than others, you know? Yeah. And if you get a good one, you know, then it makes your job so much easier as a dungeon master, you know? And, mm-hmm. you know, people have done the work for you, you know? It takes less time to prep for it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, like when it comes to homebrew, when, you're, when your fighter kicks down the door, it's on you to know what's behind that door. But with a module, they, someone's already decided what's behind that door. It's just a matter of you reading ahead, you know, and, and knowing the adventure well enough to know, okay, if the fighter's going to kick down this door, there's, you know, three bugbears and a very grumpy, gassy cave troll behind yeah. there that he's going to have to fight. And the bugbear has a torch, and it's not going to be a fun fight. Yeah. <laughs> With the gassy trade cave troll. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Fireball! <laughs> and a new deck save. And a yeah. god save. Yeah. Oh, yeah, totally. <laughs> so, kind of moving on from the pace, from the, uh, the preparation a little bit into the, the next part. And this is really something that even I think the best of Dungeon Masters struggle with pacing because yep. there are multiple bottlenecks in a session. <clears throat> And to me, those bottlenecks are role play, combat, and then failure. Yep. So taking those kind of in order, what sort of role play bottlenecks do you typically encounter? And what are your strategies to kind of avert those? So, I mean, I have seen, (laughs) I have seen... Not my players, but I've been a player in some games where people take forever to role play mm-hmm. because they're sitting there trying to describe all of their feelings and all the actions they take, and they're taking five minutes to describe their feelings. Mm-hmm. I don't know if it's because they just can't communicate well or what it is, but they just take way too long. <laughs> I don't know what the solution is to that. Fortunately, my players don't do that, but I, I have noticed that. Um, the, the biggest thing that I've noticed with like role playing with your outside of combat or something is decision making you know like when i don't know if this lies within the scope of what you meant by role playing yeah but groups groups making decisions is mm-hmm. miserable so if you have a group of four players they could take a half an hour to make a decision mm-hmm. if you have a group of eight players they could take an hour to make a decision and it could be something simple go left or go right that could be the decision and they're going to sit there forever to make that decision mm-hmm. so one of the things the dungeon master the dungeon master has to keep an eye on that and it has to be prepared to step in and push things along. Yeah. I recently ran a, a game for my moderators on, on discord and YouTube and stuff where uh, there were eight, there were eight players, you know, and you know, if you sit there and wait for an organic decision to result from eight players, you will never play the game. Right. You'll spend the whole game discussing and making decisions. And mm-hmm. so when somebody would propose something, Hey, let's go left because blah, blah, blah you know, and there were no voices of opposition, 
I would step in and be like, oh, I heard go left. Okay, you guys start going left. So there's a little bit to where, you know, you, you, you kind of guide them a little bit. You know, yeah. when you have lots of players, you know, making decisions, you start to guide them a little bit, you know. You'll mm-hmm. give them a little bit of space, give them some space. If they have an important decision because it actually matters, you know, let them talk a little bit. But you might have to push them a little bit. You might have to put a little pressure, you know, and pay attention to your table. You can tell when it's an important decision and your players are actively engaged. But then you can also tell when two players are arguing and the other seven are like, we don't care. Pick one. I, yep. my, I always use this as a classic example. I was watching a, a live game on a channel and they it was the season finale it was the final it was the final session of their like entire campaign and they had the players had to make a decision whether they were going to make a deal with the big bad or whether they were going to fight the big bad and i crap you not they sat at that game table for three hours just trying to decide whether they were going to make a deal or whether they were going to fight it oh and i could tell Dude, like only two players were actually having that discussion. The oh other ones God. were just sitting there mostly quiet. It was absolutely miserable. I remember, I remember make I think I made a comment on the <laughs> video or or something, but then but the response by the DM was like, that's part of the game. No. And I'm like, that's horse crap. <laughs> that's not part of the game. That's that's just you making excuses, yeah. dude. Because that is lame. <laughs> yeah, when when you are putting out when you're putting out content for people to consume, when your when your session is also doubling as someone else's entertainment, yes. you can't spend three hours deciding that kind of stuff. Well, even, yeah, even even if it weren't someone's entertainment, even right. if it yeah. hadn't been streamed, look, read your table. Four mm-hmm. of your players were bored out of their minds for three hours. Yeah, read your table, dude. Mm-hmm. Like. <laughs> you know, and, and I say this as someone who once, and I was an active contributor to this problem. This was when I was still learning the game, but I once participated in an hour long role play session of all of us trying to find a boat when one of our players had the sailor background and could automatically find passage for oh. us all on oh. a ship anywhere in a harbor. Dude, that reminds me of the time when I was a player in a game and the dungeon master had us role play crossing a river. Okay, so <laughs> so you laugh, you laugh, but the whole time he was having us role play crossing the river, I thought there was a reason for it. Mm-hmm. I thought, because he's like, okay, how do you guys get across the river? And the druid turns into a giant tortoise and the druid starts ferrying us across the river two at a time. And, and we're role-playing it out, literally role-playing it out. And it took a long time. And I'm thinking, okay, we're going to get attacked while crossing the river. Mm-hmm. Half of us are going to be on this side, half on this side. Some are going to be on the druid's back. And we're going to get attacked. And we're going to have this awesome battle in the middle of crossing a river. And positioning is going to be important. And I'm waiting for it. I'm waiting for it, right? And mm-hmm. then we all get across the river. The druid transforms back. And we continue traveling. We spent an hour role-playing crossing a river, dude. It was the <laughs> stupidest game session in the world. Yeah. I don't know who had fun. Somebody must have had fun at that <laughs> game session, but it wasn't me. It was so lame. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Pacing, that was bad pacing. That's bad mm-hmm. pacing. Yeah. Most players probably don't care about that. 
you know, you might have one or two that would enjoy that, but they're not the only players there. Right. You know, there's other people at the game table. Yeah. Yeah. And again, going back to what we've said from the beginning of this video, everyone who plays this game, you know, there's only so much time that you have to play D and D in your life. And yeah. if you spend a majority of that time trying to cross a river or trying to find a <laughs> boat or yeah. making your plan for how you're going to deal with the big bad, you know, that that does kind of take away from from your time and other people's time. And as a dungeon master, you're the de facto referee, timekeeper. You control the the tempo, and it's on it's on you as a dungeon master. If you want that great game to say, "All right, guys, decision time," or say, "A majority of you are leaning this way, we're going this way," right. And I mean, you're, 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 you're invariably going to have some people that are going to object to that. You know, they'll, if it's on Reddit, they'll be all opinionated about it. And they'll be like, yeah. you know, you don't have the right to take away our agency. You need to let us make our own decisions <laughs> and stuff like that. You know what I mean? It's yeah. like, okay, well then you also have the right to just sit there and not play the game too, dude, because that's yep. all you want to do is talk about this. So mm -hmm. I'm trying to help you actually make a meaningful decision and play the game a little bit, you know? Yep. So, yeah. <laughs> mm -hmm. Now, a big thing, and I feel like this is even bigger than, than role play in many ways, uh, combat, especially yeah. with indecisive players, can really, really bring the game to a halt. And yep. you, you've done some excellent work on this. Uh, one of your videos, I think it might have been a month or so ago, where you addressed uh, kind of speeding up combat. Um, you're someone who I view as very knowledgeable on how to kind of optimize combat for maximum enjoyment. So how would you suggest that people kind of speed up their combat sessions? Skip players when they can't give you answers and they will never do it again. They'll be faster yep. next time. It only takes one time of having your turn skipped because you weren't ready to tell the dungeon master what you were going to do. And that player is going to be like, that sucked. I hate that crap. I'm going to know I'm going to have an answer next time. So basically you give your players, you know, a few seconds, you know, when it's their turn, Hey John, what are you doing? Oh, you know, then they give you an answer. If they don't know what they're doing, then, you know, you know, a few seconds of patience and then, Oh, I'm not sure I'm going to need an answer. You know, Oh, well, well, and then they're flipping through their book. Well, I'm going to cast a spell, but I'm not sure which one. Okay. You're dodging this turn. Okay. Uh, Samantha, your turn, you know, mm -hmm. And then they just dodge. They don't get to do anything. Here's the, here's the fact of the matter. The fact of the matter is that a round of combat takes about 15 to 20 minutes sometimes, you know, um, while all of the other players are taking their turns, that's when a player should be deciding what he's going to do next. Yep. Not when the dungeon master calls his name. And so if he's squandering his time and not making a decision and figuring stuff out, when it is actually his turn, I'm not waiting for him. I'm skipping him. You know, and like my players understand the reasons. I'm not, I'm not like hiding the reasons why it's like, you guys, if you know, you've had all this time, make up your mind. The classic, the classic response will be like, but Luke, the circumstances of the combat have changed while everybody else was taking their turn. And so now I got to figure out what I'm going to do again. And then I'll be like, well, you know how long an actual turn of combat takes in the game? Six seconds. And all of the things are actually happening simultaneously. Now we take turns around the table because that's how you have to resolve it when you're playing a game yep. and everything's actually simultaneous. So whatever you had decided to do, just do it. You know, basically I don't take any excuses. You right. know, P 
people might not like it. You might be like, it's not fair. You know, he doesn't let me think about what I'm going to do and all this stuff. But the fact of the matter is, is that when a combat takes 10 hours because the dungeon master lets people do it, this is that same game session where we role played crossing the river and it was stupid. Like that same game session, it, we were in combat and one of the players, she was a spellcaster and she took about 15 minutes on her turn to decide what spell she was going to cast. And the dungeon master was just patient and let her take all of her time. And I'm just like, th- th- this guy was, now the, the more I'm talking about it, the more I'm remembering it, this guy was an absolute abysmal like dungeon master as far as like pacing con- was concerned. You know, 15 minutes to pick out a spell. You know what I mean? Everybody else was lickety split, you know, and she just can't decide what spell she's going to cast. Mm-hmm. It's like, that's, that's miserable, man. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and I mean, this is something else that, that dungeon masters really need is to to know their book. But as a player, you know, it, when you're new, it's excusable to a point. But once you've been playing for a while, especially if you're playing a spellcaster, but it applies to, you know, fighters and, and martial classes as well, know what each of your abilities does. Know, you know, okay, that's an AoE spell. If I drop it on this area where you know the rogue and the fighter and the barbarian are all in close combat i'm going to hit them as well know what every spell on your sheet does in general and look at the and this is why it's so important in my mind to have some kind of visual reference for the battle Mm -hmm. know where everyone is know how your action will affect them as they are acting and then by the time it's your turn you should know what you're going to do yeah, yeah, totally. I, ideally, yeah, you're, you're, you're going to know what your skills are and your yeah. spells and stuff. But even if you don't, you can still take quick decisions. People yeah. at the table can help you. The dungeon master can help you. Like I have a player, she's, she's been playing with us for about two or three years, but mm-hmm. she's a pretty casual player. She doesn't really know her spells or abilities super well. We'll just right. help her out. We'll just remind her, oh, you remember to hide. Bonus action to hide. Okay, that's right. You know, mm-hmm. what is it? What does this disguised self spell do? Oh, we'll tell you, you know. But she yep. doesn't have a hard time making decisions quickly. You know, we just give her a helping hand, you know. Mm-hmm. So even if you don't know your stuff, you can still make decisions quickly. <laughs> yeah. It's still not an excuse, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And then another thing that I like to do, um, just to, to speed things up on my end, because I find, or I found before I started using this tactic, a lot of times I would be slowing the game down by having to kind of track, you know, damage that a monster had taken and stuff like that. And so something that I've done, this is another Matt Colville strategy that I've adopted is I appoint someone at the table or ask someone to volunteer to be the, the monster wrangler. Yeah. Usually it's (laughs) my wife just poked her head in. Usually it's her. Uh, she, (laughs) she does that for, for our party. Um, and you just have that person kind of, you know, listen out. And, you know, when someone says, okay, I'm dealing this much damage to this creature, uh, you know, you make a note of that and every now and, or they make a note of that. And every now and then, you know, you look at their stat block, look over to that player and go, hey, you know, what's, how much damage has the uh, the beholder taken? And they're like, oh, uh, 100 hit points. And you're like, oh, good. You guys are still screwed. <laughs> yeah, Totally. Yeah, keeping track of little stuff like that um, can take time. I've, I, what I do is I just uh, I round everything up or down. 
And then mm -hmm. I just use tick marks to keep track of the monsters. So if somebody's like, I hit him for eight damage, that's one tick mark. I yep. hit him for 17 damage. That's two. I hit him for two damage. I don't even track it. You know what <laughs> I mean? It's like a yep. grazing shot. It averages out to be the same. Yep. And then that makes tracking uh, super fast. We tried doing that where I had a player keep track of it. Ultimately, we decided that it wasn't any faster at all hmm. <laughs> for whatever reason. But that's just our group. So we tried it out, you know. Yeah. Um, but I'll also take, I'll also, most of, the most of the time, actually, the way I track hit dice or hit points is by next to the mini on the map, I will have a die. And it's usually a D6. Well, it depends on how many hit points they have. If they have yep. 80 hit points, it's a D8. If they have 100 hit points, it's a D10. And then for every 10 damage they take, I'll increment that die by one. And so the players could all see a visual reference on the table of how damaged an enemy is. And like if they have, if it's a D10 and they have 100 hit points, when that D10 gets to a nine, they know it's almost dead. And yep. then when it gets to a 10, it's dead. And what this does is it prevents the multiple times players are going to ask you, hey, how's he looking? How damaged is he? Hey, who hasn't taken damage yet? Or who, who's taken damage? Prevents all of those because there's a handy visual reference. And then yep. I'm not keeping track of math. I'm just incrementing a die every time he takes damage. It's like super mm -hmm. fast, super easy. Yep. You know? But yeah, little tricks like that, little tricks like that. And the more of those little tricks you can get, they all add up to a massive cumulative time saving in combat mm -hmm. yeah absolutely and now we come to uh something that's actually really tricky and and something that i think other game systems have like codified in the rules that maybe fifth edition kind of leaves a little bit more vague and that's what happens when someone fails in the task that you had set out for them I always use yep. the example of the ranger because I play rangers a lot. Um, I'm I'm that I'm that masochist who likes the ranger class and is is willing to to fall on that grenade for the other players. <laughs> um, so you know you're the ranger. You've got a really high wisdom. You're really good at tracking. It finally comes up your time. Okay, you know you, this this band of orcs got away and you know they were they were here two hours ago but you know the the trail's still there no problem i've got a plus four on my wisdom with my proficiency bonus we're looking at you know like a i don't know a plus six to tracking you roll you get a two yeah what a lot of times dungeon masters are just like oh well you don't find anything how do you move for how do you fail forward yeah, so like that's that's a hard one because so basically what I want as a dungeon master, my mm -hmm. goal is for my players to be successful. Yeah. I want them to track those orcs down. I mm -hmm. want them to find their hideout. I want them to go into that hideout and beat the tar out of them. Like that's what I want. But they just screwed up their tracking check. Yeah. Okay. Now, how do you fail forward in that position? Well, usually at that point. Like, I'll be like, so they got like a total of an eight and I'll be like, yeah, you don't find their tracks, dude. You can't find their tracks anywhere. And then I'll just be quiet. And it's up to, it's up to my players at that point mm -hmm. to try to brainstorm and figure out how they're going to do this, what they can do, you mm -hmm. know? And then my mind the whole time is problem solving, yeah. you know? Like when I'm quiet, my players are talking, I'm always thinking and I'm trying to problem solve. Okay. So now what am I going to do? And they'll, they'll be brainstorming ideas. And then 
I'll be like, oh, that's a good idea. That might work. Oh, that's a good idea. That might work. But mm-hmm. a lot of times, like, I'll, leave, I'll, leave, I'll let my players figure that out, you know? And then, then one of their ideas will work, you know? But I'm always, I'm always behind the scenes trying to help it work, trying yeah. to make it work. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. All, ideally, so there's always that strategizing. There's always that conniving that goes on behind the scenes of the Dungeon Master to help your players get to where they're trying to go and where you want them to go, which is the success state. Yep. Um, but there's also, if you can avoid painting yourself into a corner, that's even better. So, like, why is tracking them a survival check the only possible solution to that? It would be better if there were multiple solutions, you know? So instead of just the orcs, you know, tracking them you know you you look around and you can't find their tracks but you hear some some like groaning from the bushes and you go over there and there's like a guy with his like stomach cut open and the orcs had attacked him you know Mm -hmm. and he happened to see which way they went so if you help him get some information from him he can tell you the general direction you head off in that direction and then you see smoke in the sky because they just burned down like some dude's like house or something, you know? Mm-hmm. And so there are multiple clues you can put in there, you know, yeah. and, and you can do these on the fly. I just made that example up on the fly of a yeah. dude groaning because my players had failed. And so I was like, Oh crap, how are they going to get the clue they need to go in the right direction? Oh, Oh, there's a guy over here. You know, he can tell them, you know, my players don't know. I just made that up. Hopefully I'm good enough at my job, you know, that my players don't realize that I just made that up because they failed their survival check you know, mm-hmm. and then they're, and then they're ultimately going to be able to find their way forward. Yeah. And so failing forward is, is in part, it can be preparation where you plan it in advance so that there are multiple ways to get to where you're trying to go. My cat's going nuts over here. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it's also, it's also improvisation and creativity on the fly mm-hmm. when you have like an oh crap moment, yep. you know, one other aspect of pacing uh, just that I've kind of found is a personal struggle for me. Um, when it comes to having kind of that overarching story or, you know, general idea of where the party is going to end up kind of by the end of your campaign, I found that I will often get bogged down in just a lot of wheel spinning and a lot of not moving that, that story forward or not setting my players up to move that story forward. Yeah. How how do you go about making sure that there's some kind of progression from session to session so that the players don't feel like they're spinning their wheels? So like what I've always done, and this just seems very natural to me, is that every 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 adventure is like an episode of a TV series. Yeah. You know, like if you've watched like um I don't know. I'm recently, I've been watching a lot of the Marvel ones like daredevil and uh, Jessica Jones and stuff. (laughs) And like, if you watch these things, usually at the end of the episode, what do you find? You find a little bit of a lead in to the next episode, you know, Oh, they found a dead body. And then the episode ends. Okay. Well, what's the natural progression of that? We got to figure out who killed the dead body. Well, that's the next episode. And so basically when I design my adventures, most of the time, you know, somewhere over the course of that adventure, and it's often toward the end, they're going to find something that leads them to the next adventure. Mm-hmm. A lot of times they'll be fighting lieutenants or somebody of the big bad. And so the big bad has to communicate to the lieutenants. He's got to send them letters or something. And so they might, 
go to the lieutenant's room and search the dresser or the chest or, or, or the, 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 the desk and find like a letter, some letters from the big bad, you know, they might, you know, go into the general's like um, quarters and find a map of like all of the major encampments of the army. And then they know, Hey, there are five encampments. You know, we were told to stop the orcs. Well, I guess we got to go to each one of these and make sure that they're neutralized or something, you know? And so you place things. It could be handouts. It could just be pieces of information. You place things throughout the adventure that's going to lead them to the next one, you know, so mm-hmm. that you don't, you're not always, most of the time, I don't have like NPC quest givers that will give you um, what you need to do. You know, most of the time they'll find something over the course of an adventure that will mm-hmm. key them in on what's the next thing to do, you know, and then it's up to them to, to go and do it, you know. And so that's kind of how I tend to do it for at least one of my styles of games, you know? Yeah. Cause I do run different styles of games that where I don't do that quite as much, but that's intentional and it's for a reason. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So the next aspect of kind of, you know, making that game that really kind of is over the top and, and, you know, that your, your players will remember is the variety of encounters. And this, this comes down to not just having a variety of monsters show up, but having a variety of situations where combat may be the answer, or maybe it's a puzzle, or maybe there's some kind of role play answer. So how, how do you find, uh, how challenging do you find kind of balancing out the, the types of encounters that your players can, can run into over the course of an adventure? Yeah, so I mean, I always try to have some sort of social interaction encounter mm-hmm. in, a, in an adventure. So it could be slaves that can be rescued. It might be goblin cooks that don't really want to fight, and they'll they'll help you and talk to you. You know, mm-hmm. I'll always have at least one or two different things in an adventure that is not intended to be combat. Like mm-hmm. they're just non-combatants, or they're there to be rescued or something. So I'll definitely try to play something like that there so that there is that strong social element. Now, as far as the combats themselves, the rest of the encounters, I I have a pretty solid rule that I almost never start a combat myself as a dungeon master. I always make my players be the one to start the combat. So if they come into a room and there are a bunch of orcs in there, the orcs might drop their hands to their weapons and be like, what are you doing here? Who are you? You know, who sent you? Yep. You know, and then my players have a chance to have that social interaction, converse with them. Maybe they're going to lie to them. Maybe they're going to deceive them. Maybe they'll say, Lord Paxton sent us. Why aren't you clearing out those mines over there? You know, and then, mm-hmm. then who knows? The orcs will be like, oh, what, 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 what? You know what I mean? And so by not, because I have been in so many games where the dungeon master will describe, you open the door and there are three orcs. They draw their weapons and attack you. We had no choice. We had no chance at all to talk to them. Yeah. So like the players who are thespians, the players who want to talk and want to interact, no opportunity. It was a combat out of the gate. And so yeah. I make it a, it's not a set, it's not a hard rule, but I do my best to not have it monsters attack first, unless it's like they wouldn't not attack. It's like it was, the encounter was designed as an ambush or blah, 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 whatever. You know what yep. I mean? Some, there are some where it's like they are going to attack. But like I would say 80% at least of my encounters that ultimately do turn out to be combats, 
You know, I let my players make that decision. I give them the choice of whether we're going to fight these guys, we're going to negotiate, we're going to deceive them, we're going to try to sneak past them. You know, they can do that. Sneaking past is not usually a good idea, though, because once you get found out, then you have a lot of bad guys behind you, too. Yeah, yeah. Once you're <laughs> once you're in the dungeon, you then have to get back out. And, yes. Uh, yeah. So that could be a that could be a tough situation. But the, the point mm-hmm. is, is I let my players be the ones to decide. Yeah. You know what it's going to be. Mm-hmm. And I mean, one thing when it, when it comes to, I, I do like to kind of let my players decide. You know whether or not it's going to turn into a fight or, you know, how they're going to handle it. But, uh, you know, one thing that I found is, you know, sometimes you, you do have to create those times where it's, it's going to turn into a fight no matter what, because otherwise you're going to get that, that min maxed fighter or paladin who's, you know, just like armed to the teeth and geared up for combat. Yeah. And you have the bard who always seems to get the natural twenties. Yeah. That's, that's going to try and charm the pants off of things. So every now and then you're going to have to say, no, that dragon doesn't want to sleep with you. Right. He's going to kill you. Right. Because ultimately you have, you have almost every group has players that just want to fight crap. Yeah. That's, that's what's fun to them. And then you have the player who wants to talk and negotiate. Like I have a youngling campaign that has two girls and two boys. The girls usually just want to talk to everything and negotiate and talk their way by stuff. The boys just want to kill everything. Mm-hmm. You know, they're all about like 14 years old, you know, yeah. 14, 15 years old. They, so it's like, it's pretty, it's pretty delineated what their desires are. So sometimes they get to, they always get to talk to things, you know, most of the time it turns into killing them. And so mm-hmm. everybody kind of gets what they want. You know, sometimes they don't have to kill them, you know, Depends on what the group decides. Yeah, but the boys usually seal that <laughs> fate. <laughs> well, yeah, and you're always going to have the, or not always, but but there's there's usually going to be a situation where one player, you know, you're like, okay, there's a there's a group of bug bears, and the players immediately just like kill them. Right. Yeah. You don't even I, have to finish the description. There's just like I'm I'm drawing my sword. I, I have, I have, I've had player, I've had at least one player like that. I ignore him. <laughs> I flat out ignore him. I, I crap you not. He is ruining other people's fun. Yeah. Like I, I will, I will introduce a bunch of creatures and he's like, firebolt, elders blast, fireball. And I just ignore him. I'm just like, mm-hmm. dude, dude, I, I, I'll tell him, listen, other people want to play this game too. Yep. And not everybody just wants to fight everything. And mm-hmm. so like, is it taking away his agency? You dang right it is. But you know what? I'm not going to like let him ruin everybody else's fun at that table so that I don't take away his agency. There needs to right. be a little bit of give and take. You know what yeah. I mean? So, yeah. Yeah, and if you don't like put the kibosh on that, even when it is a group of bugbears, at some point it's going to be, you know, the, the old granny in the village approaches you and that player's going to be like, yeah, I kill her. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's like, what? You kill her. That's great. <laughs> and I would so have fun I, with that. Mm-hmm. I would have tons of fun with that. If they, if, if I had players that just started killing some grandmas and stuff, man. Yep. Oh, baby, I would have fun with that. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> turns, turns out one of those grandmas was actually a night hag. Ugh, sucks to be you. I mean, or, or it would just be like, you know, you suddenly have a powerful group of adventurers that are like, you know, bounty hunting you. Yep. You know, there are severe consequences that could happen when you just go murder hobo. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> one, one of my DMS, um, 
of the past said that his strategy is when a party goes full on murder hobo, they'll encounter an old man who's a gold dragon in disguise. Oh trying yeah. To, trying to judge the, uh, the, the goodness of humanity. And when he uh-huh. encounters the murder party, he's just like, no, nope, nope. You guys are dead. Yeah. Dude, like your viewers are going to be like, what is this cat? I hear this cat going crazy. That's Squirty Pie. She's like worked up. She's running back and forth. She's howling. She does this from time to time. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, fortunately, my so the the loud cat that used to be a regular on the podcast was my old roommate's cat, and now yeah. I've just got Ronan and Nora who just lie on the bed behind me and sleep. The last big point here is uh, character and player engagement, specifically when it comes to a story driven campaign. Um, how how much importance do you place on making sure that each character gets, if not their own arc per se, their own moments and their own time mm-hmm. to show their strengths? Yeah. So like that's I have noticed that that is something that players enjoy. Mm-hmm. They they like it when stuff from their backstories make it into the game. They like it when there is an entire quest that has that has to do with rescuing their mother that they haven't seen for a decade, you know, from some bad guys. So mm-hmm. players dig that stuff. Now, does it need to be a whole quest every time? Nope. It could just be an encounter. I remember this one time, one of my characters was a soldier. One of my players had a character who was a soldier who killed uh, his former commander. And his former commander came back in the game as Revenant um, with some other like minions with them and they had to fight them and kill them, you know, and afterwards it was a simple, very simple encounter, you know, very simple idea. And afterwards the player was like, Luke, that was awesome. Thank you. You know? Mm-hmm. Um, so like, it doesn't have to be big and flashy, but little things, you know, and I try to work them in my, my players that give me backstories get special things in the game for their characters. Yeah. If you don't make a backstory, then you get nothing. And you know, if you, if you put work in, I'll put work in, you know, um, so like right now, like I have, uh, you know, my, but it takes some time if you want your own quest, that's got to get worked in. So you got to be patient yep. for it, you know, but I try to do that. I think players enjoy that. So it's definitely something that's important to me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And one thing that I've found, um, and, and this is just an aspect of, of group dynamics in general. Uh, it just plays out in, in role-playing games because of the nature of the game. You're going to have people who are going to be kind of, you know, they want to be the center of attention. I pick mm-hmm. on the bards all the time. Yeah. The people who are like this play the bards. Uh, you know, they, they want to always have their character be in the middle of the conversation, be kind of the, the focal point of the action. And so sometimes I find that you, you have to almost in a way force the perspective to be on other players sometimes just to make sure that it's, it doesn't turn into this player solo campaign with these other players just kind of basically being NPCs. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you, you have to manage the table. It's a dungeon master. Yeah. You have to recognize when somebody's talking too much, you know, and then basically get them to quiet down and then have other people be able to talk, you know, mm-hmm. And I mean, sometimes I'll just interrupt them and be like, hey, hold on a second, hold on a second. Hey, John, what do you think? What are you thinking over there? Hey, Samantha, what do, what do you think about this whole deal with the dragon? Does this seem legit to you? Like, what's going on? Because mm-hmm. sometimes there are two things that happen. First of all, you know, some players want to engage in the game. They want to say things, but they can't get a moment to say it 
because they don't want to interrupt somebody. And then the conversation goes on and then, and then it's onto something else and it's too late to get their thought in, you know? Now there are some people that legitimately are okay taking a spectator role yeah. and they actually would rather just watch you guys all and then they'll take their turn in combat, but they really don't care about engaging beyond that, you know? Mm -hmm. And so you want to like make sure people have an opportunity to get in and say stuff and, and participate, you know, in that way. But you don't want to force that on them because sometimes people just don't want to. And right. they're just like, no, I'm just going to watch. It's cool. When, when I'm trying for me to swing my sword, I'll swing my sword, you know? So, mm -hmm. but yeah, it's important to make sure that, you know, you can kind of shut, shut the loud ones up from time to time so everybody else can get their, get their turn. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And something that's very much related to kind of, you know, players having their moments there's a phrase that's thrown around a ton in, you know, Reddit discussions and, and podcasts and YouTube videos. And that phrase is the rule of cool. <laughs> DMs love and players love to talk about the rule of cool. And I find a lot of times the rule of cool is invoked when someone wants to be disruptive or wants to, you know, make their character overpowered. So yeah. Luke, at your table, when does the rule of cool apply? Almost never. <laughs> Almost never. Like very rarely. Um, and it's usually prefaced by, okay, this is not setting a precedent. I'm letting you do this one time because it made me laugh. I thought it was funny and it was a clever idea. Mm -hmm. But the next time it's not going to work. Right. Okay. So you get to do it this one time. And then their clever, crazy, creative idea they can attempt it. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. um, and they'll probably still have to roll on it, you know? Because yeah. a lot of times the rule of cool ideas are the things that are almost impossible. And so you still got to make a roll, dude. You know, just because you had the great idea of, you know, whatever, launching a kobold out of a rocket to kill the dragon doesn't mean it's going to work just because you had an idea. You know what mm -hmm. I mean? Yeah. So, like, the rule of cool is kind of, yeah. I am not a really big believer in the rule of cool, you know? Mm -hmm. Um and, and I think what you said is right. A lot of times it's meant to be disruptive and stuff like that. And, and the reason, and the reason, honestly, the reason it gets thrown around on Reddit is that Reddit is all about like stories yeah. and people earning karma and crap like that. It's not based mm -hmm. in reality. A lot of times, yeah. like I, the more I'm convinced that like, like lots of people who spend their time on Reddit talking about D and D probably don't play the game a whole lot. They yeah. they're, they're on Reddit because they, aren't playing the game and they're just talking about the game. Yeah. People that play the game are probably out there playing the game and they don't have time to like post on Reddit. Yeah. You know? So like, I think, I think a lot of that is just, it sounds cool. The rule of cool sounds awesome and people laugh and joke about it. It's kind of like the Reddit story about like, you know, the, the necromancer who had an army of like 80 zombies and a hundred skeletons and how it was this amazing fun game and he loved it and it was awesome and they were just destroying everything. But what you never read about in that Reddit story is the other four players who were bored out of their minds because it took forever in combat for that necromancer's summons. What yep. they don't read about is the dungeon master who had to rework the entire module to make it challenging for that necromancer's army. You know, And so Reddit and other online places, I pick on Reddit a lot because it's a flaming cesspool a yep. lot of times. Um, <laughs> but yeah. I, so I pick on it for reasons, but a lot of times Reddit conveniently ignores the other side of the story mm -hmm. and they emphasize the elements that are most convenient, you know, to earn karma or whatever it is that drives folks to 
perpetuate those things. I don't know. I probably have a lot of people on Reddit that hate me. <laughs> Which is fine because like, yeah, I used to post on Reddit and stuff and it was, it was, it, it caused anxiety and misery. Like yeah. some of the reactions and the day that I decided that's it, I am never posting on here again. I cannot tell you how relieved I felt and how good I felt, mm-hmm. you know? And so it is, it is a segment of my life that I'm happy to never revisit. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, in my games, you know, I, I like to think that the rule of cool is out there, but nine times out of 10, the way it plays out is someone will describe something that they're doing that's very much kind of, you know, within the, the possibilities of the game mechanics. They just describe it in a cool or interesting way. And yeah. I go, okay, you know, you want to you wanna leap kind of out of your range to hit something with a, a, a melee attack. Give me an athletics check and then make the attack roll. Yeah. And that's, but, that's kind of what a rule of cool looks like in, in my game. And if someone wow. says, I want to, you know, use my shield to give them a boost, I go, okay, now you can make wow. that, uh, you can make that athletics check with advantage. And next time, uh, or, you know, you, you player who does the shield thing, that's your reaction. You don't get to do mm-hmm. whatever it was this time that you could use your reaction on. You're, you use your reaction to aid this person. Yeah, that's now, how the rule of cool plays out at my table most of the time. Now, see, the way you're describing it just sounds like good dungeon mastering well, and allowing you. your players to do things when yeah. they have ideas. Like, that's not stretching the bounds of what should or should not be possible. That's mm-hmm. just that's just realism, you know? I'm going to yeah. give them a boost by shield. I'm going to try to jump. None of those things are, like, you know, crazy or far-fetched. So mm-hmm. allowing your players to do those things, that's good. And that's going to make them feel like, oh, my dungeon master doesn't have it against me. And he's letting me do these things. It's I'm not jumping to the moon. I'm just mm-hmm. jumping five feet, you yeah. know, and he's going to let me roll on it. So that's just, that's just good, reasonable dungeon mastering and, you know, letting your players do things that are, I mean, they are cool mm-hmm. and they are interesting, you know, but they're not like insanely far-fetched. Well, so because yeah. when I think of the rule of cool, I think of them trying to do crazy stuff that's probably not possible. Yeah, you know, and then saying yes to it because it's cool. You know, that's that's the sort of thing that I more have that visceral reaction of like, ah, uh, no, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I guess I mean where I would leave it, kind of just from my perspective, is think of the rule of cool as you know, like like Luke said, letting your players you know stretch the boundaries of what you know, a specific action looks like, or, you know, let them describe things in cool ways and be a little bit flexible in the rules, uh, you know, kind of knowing the spirit of the rules and why they're there to let them do something that's maybe a little bit beyond what would normally be allowable, like leaping up in the air to, uh, to try to swing your sword at a creature that's hovering above the ground outside of your range, rather than just saying you can't hit it with a melee attack. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. A little, a little bit of stretching that's reasonable. Yeah. And so, you know, we're, we're running a little bit late here. Um, it's, it's been a great conversation. I don't want to keep you too terribly long. Cause again, you know, we, we both have other things going on and, yeah, you have a big we got a bunch of bullet points out here. Yeah. 
Yeah, I, I just put a whole bunch of stuff together and a lot of it we've we've covered in covering other things. So yeah. uh, just, just to kind of round things out here, uh, is there anything that we didn't cover, any advice that you'd give to dungeon masters looking to up their game that we haven't talked about? So yeah, I think I think one important thing is to get feedback from your players. Yeah. Like ask your players. Like routinely I'll ask my players, usually it's three questions, you know. What's something what's something that I'm doing that you like and that I should keep doing? What's something that I'm doing that you don't like and I should stop doing? And what's something that I'm not doing that I should consider start do it to start doing? Mm-hmm. You know? Um, because your players will give you feedback if you ask them for it. You know, they'll tell you what they like, which means double down. They love that crap. Yep. They'll tell you the things they don't like. So it's like, oh, oh, I didn't even know that. Oh, you don't like that? Oh, okay. I'll, I wasn't aware. I'll, 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 you know, or things that you should try. And so get feedback from your players. Like mm-hmm. they, they'll, they're that, like if the goal is to, that everybody has fun, that your players have fun, they can tell you what's fun for them and what yep. they enjoy. You know, that doesn't mean you're beholden to that because you're the dungeon master and the game needs to be fun for you. Mm-hmm. You know, if the players all are like, well, it would be fun for us to just do X thing. And as the dungeon master, you're like, that sounds miserable. I don't want to run that game. Well, then don't do it because you're going right. to, you're going to hate it, you know, but talk to your players, get feedback from them. You know, mm-hmm. it's, it's that, that will help you make your game better, faster than just randomly choosing stuff where you're like, Oh, maybe this will be fun, you know, whereas mm-hmm. you could just talk to him directly and, and figure it out much faster. Yep. Absolutely. Yeah. And I mean, when it comes to, you know, the, the moment where I, I personally went from thinking I am a competent dungeon master to maybe I'm good at this, uh, going all the way back to the beginning of the episode was when one of my players who'd been playing the game for a long time said, dude, you're a great dungeon master. Mm-hmm. So as a DM, kind of the measure of your game is the smiles on your players' faces. And, yes. and just keep that in mind as you yes. are running your games. Yeah, and I think it's, I think it's important to, to just always be humble about it too, you know, mm-hmm. in, in, in a sense that like, I can always learn more. I can always get better. You know, I make mistakes all the time, you know. Almost every game session I could put out something that's like, oh, I could have done that better. I had, I had a grand boss battle my lord paxton of my sword coast guard game the 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 boss battle to cap the entire campaign we'd been running for like three years and i made lots of mistakes in it i designed it poorly i could go over a list which we don't have time for and so it was kind of like here i am you know youtube channel being a great dungeon master videos on boss battles and perfect boss battles and i just screwed up a boss battle Mm -hmm. you know and I should have known it wasn't going to be that great. Now my players probably still had fun, but I know that it wasn't as good as it could have been, you know? So being humble and realizing that we're all learning, we're all trying to get better. And even when you do know something, you can still screw up, you know, and it's okay. You just keep trying to get better, you know? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Well, Luke, uh, as is customary on Rolling Bones, uh, just for this last little bit, anything you've got coming up that you want to promote, anything like that, um, it is all you right now. Go ahead and uh, promote what you got. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I got my YouTube channel, the DM layer, you know, I have, uh, my website, the DM has tons of free resources, adventures, NPCs, magic items and stuff, um, that people can get for free. Uh, we create those things on my live streams on YouTube, you know, 
Um, I'm on Twitch as well for live streams, the DM layer, you know, and uh, I'm planning a Kickstarter coming up sometime-ish in the next few months, I hope. Um, uh, no promises. <laughs> it's, it's new for me, so I'm still feeling that crap out. But it's probably going to be like a, a module, a low-level module for players level one to five set with a Fey theme because nobody's published those modules yet for the edition that I know of. At least not the official Wizards one. So mm-hmm. I'll do something like that. So those are like my projects and stuff, you know. But yeah. Cool. All right. Well, Luke, thank you again for, for you know, coming on the show and, and having this, uh, this conversation with, with me about, you know, just kind of upping your game. You've given me a lot of good advice and, you know, you've definitely given the listeners a lot of good advice. So thanks for coming on. Yeah. Yeah. No problem, dude. It's fun stuff, man. Sorry you've had to look at a blue video the whole time. And I'm glad your listeners won't actually see the blue video. <laughs> it's, it's all good. We've had much worse uh, video and, and technical difficulties on, on this show and shows past. So Yeah, I bet. Yeah. And the meowing cats. Go, <laughs> it just adds, it adds flavor to it. You Absolutely. Know? Yeah. Character. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this is, this is great, dude. Thanks for having me on, buddy. No problem. And guys, uh, next week, um, you know, we, we were trying to do this episode back in April. Uh, the campaign got delayed, though, because, well, you all know what's going on in the world right now. I don't need to go over that again. But next week, he's finally coming back on the show. Ladies and gentlemen, the legendary Levi Combs of Planet X Games is coming on to talk about his newest uh, Kickstarter campaign, Escape from Skullcano Island, it's got kaiju. It's crazy, ridiculous nonsense. I've already backed it. I love talking to Levi, and it's going to be great to have him on the show. But until then, whether you rolled a 1 or a 20, I am so glad that you rolled your bones with me, Ryan Howard, and I'll see you next time.